After I fell in love at first sight with Prince as a kid, I started looking through my parents' magazines for any information or mention of him that I could find. This was my first experience of being a fan. I discovered his first studio album, For You, was released on April 7, 1978, literally a year after I was born. In the logic of fandom, I assumed that meant the universe had sent Prince to me. When I learned the lyrics of When Doves Cry, I knew that Prince knew me and the struggle of being raised in an abusive household, trying not to repeat your parents' mistakes. My father was too bold. My mother was never satisfied. I felt like we understood each other, despite so many differences between us. And then, in 1995, when I was 18 years old, Prince began writing Slave on his face, and I no longer understood him. Here's Prince on the Larry King Live show in 1999. Once I started writing Slave on my face, I pretty much knew the outcome. I mean, you, you have to understand that it, that word on one's face pretty much changes that, the dynamic of any meeting that you're in. Uh, when they see it. And how did people react to you when they did see it? Well, the record company didn't really <laughs> say too much. They just kind of, all right, uh, what's the business at hand today? <laughs> you know, and that was it. <laughs> Prince was in a contract dispute with his record company, Warner Brothers. He felt the company was taking advantage of their business relationship and had more control over his name and creative output than was fair or right. Okay, I could understand that, but he was not forced to labor under backbreaking circumstances, right? His body was still his, right? He could go anywhere he wanted without a pack of dogs or armed men forcing him to return. What exactly about having his own palatial estate, complete with a studio and a full staff of chefs, assistants, and security guards, made him a slave? As a young Black girl born and raised in the South who could not trace her family history past her great-grandmother as a result of American slavery, I found his comparison offensive and demeaning. I had been a staunch supporter of Prince through all the strange interviews, all the rumors of womanizing, all the attacks against his manhood and masculinity, even when he changed his name to an unpronounceable symbol. But now... I wasn't sure I could follow along. And I wondered if the artist I'd loved before I even loved myself was gone. This is The Prince Mixtape, and I'm your host, Nicole Perkins. In this episode, we are going to get into Prince's battle for the right to own his masters and what it's meant to artists in the almost 30 years since he first wrote Slave on his face. When he walked in the door, what I noticed is that his clothing, although not the clothing of a wealthy person, his clothing was immaculate. First thing I thought is, this is someone who knows their way around an iron. And secondly, that he had taken the time to make himself perfectly presentable to come over and meet little old me. 
This is Prince's first manager, Owen Husney. In 1976, a teenage Prince wanted to meet at Owen's home instead of at his office, and Prince made an immediate and lasting impression. When you say Prince to people, most people think limousines, entourage, bodyguards, all of this kind of stuff. No, this was a kid who had barely been out of Minnesota in his lifetime, and it was none of that. Owen started out as a music promoter in Minneapolis. He also owned an 800-seat nightclub called Marigold Ballroom that first introduced then-newcomers Billy Joel and Bonnie Raitt to Midwest audiences. He also put Milwaukee jazz singer Al Jarreau in a few shows. Al Jarreau, with his distinctive voice, would later have hits like the theme to the television show Moonlighting and the top 20 hit We're In This Love Together. At the time, Owen wasn't interested in becoming a manager, but he did help raise funds for Al Jarreau to go out to California. That's where another manager got Jarreau a record deal with Warner Brothers. I hung up the phone and I literally cried. I was so jealous. <sighs> and then I thought, what are the odds of me sitting in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and another significant talent is going to walk in my door? This is impossible. While Owen was trying to figure out where he could find the next big star in Minneapolis, Chris Moon and Prince were working on music in Chris's studio. And in October 1976, the hungry young recording engineer camped out in Owen's small office waiting area for a chance to play a red-hot demo tape for him. A fellow by the name of Chris Moon walks in my door. You might remember Chris Moon from our first episode. He helped produce and record, and in some cases write, some of Prince's earliest recorded songs. He sat for a few days in my office, and one day I walked in, I said, all right, play me this big thing you got. I'm like shuffling the papers on my desk, trying to play big time guy, and uh, he's stuffing something into my cassette machine, and he presses play. And I'll tell you something, within about nine or ten seconds, I stopped what I was doing. And I said, what is, who is this? What band is this? It wasn't a band. That was Prince, all by himself. And he said, no, it's not a band. It's not studio musicians. It's one kid. And he's playing, and he's writing everything, and he's singing everything. <laughs> and what I noticed was someone who was attempting to do something new. He was using certain keyboards to replicate string arrangements that he was using guitar parts that were blending into other things. And this was very unusual for the day. I listened to that demo tape about 5,000 times. The cassette, I wore it out. I knew every lick, I knew every part of everything that they had done. And I wanted to know more about Soft and Wet. I think we all did. Soon after that meeting, Owen becomes Prince's first manager, and Owen's first step to getting Prince a record deal is to re-record his demo. 
Prince agrees to work with a local engineer named David Rifkin, a.k.a. David Z. I bring Prince over there to meet David. And of course, Prince has, you know, nine words and that's about it. And David was talking to him and he kind of interrupted David in the middle of it. And he looked at me, he said, Owen, let's go. And I thought, oh my God, he wants to get out of here. This is so embarrassing. And I get in the car with him afterwards and I said, Prince, he's an engineer. He's not a big accredited producer yet, but he's the best that we have here. Why did you want to leave? He said, I already made up my mind and I'm going to work with him exclusively. There was no reason to waste any more time. <laughs> so... So David Z re-recorded Prince's demo, and Owen headed to California to shop it around. It wasn't enough to simply make appointments with all the major record labels. Owen needed to generate buzz. So he came up with a clever way of building a bidding war for Prince's first record contract. I lied my way into three record labels. I called Columbia Records and told them that Warner Brothers was flying a young genius out from Minneapolis. Did they want to take the meeting while it was on Warner Brothers' dime? Oh, of course. Yeah, we'll take the meeting. Young genius, not on our dime. We'll take the meeting. Then I hung up from them and I called Warner Brothers. Hey, Columbia Records is flying us out. So in order to do the best job for Prince, I had to get a three-label bidding war, which we got. Owen was also holding out for a three-album deal because he knew a genre-bending talent like Prince would need time to find his audience. And although Prince loved R&B, his affinity for rock and roll guitar riffs meant he would need a record label that would not pigeonhole him. Back then, Black artists were typically marketed to Black audiences only with very limited financial support. And so I was pushing for three albums because that's what it was going to take. And I knew that other labels would not get it like Warner Brothers at that time. And I knew that they would tend to just pigeonhole him, and Warner Brothers was the place to be. By this point in the mid-1970s, music industry executives thought of Warner Brothers Records as a label that knew how to nurture new talent. It also knew how to take artists who already had good buzz around them and help them ride that wave to stardom. Alice Cooper, Randy Newman, Rod Stewart, and Fleetwood Mac were among the roster of Warner Brothers acts making music history. They didn't have many Black artists signed, but there was no denying the talent before them in Prince. They had had R&B hits or Black radio hits, however you want to call it. They had had them at that time, but that was not their specialty. But in the meetings with them, I knew that they got it, that this kid here who was... 18, bordering on 19, they saw where he could go. They knew the talent. So they gave us three albums firm. And that's the best way to launch an artist. That would never happen today. Before signing his name on the dotted line, Prince wanted to be assured of one thing. He'd have complete creative control. It was one of the most important aspects of the recording deal to him. Even as a teen, he knew what he was capable of and was adamant that he wanted to produce himself. 18-year-old kid who's never made an album in his life is now going to produce his own album for Warner Brothers. <laughs> Prince said, no one is going to produce me but me. And I believed him. Warner Brothers needed some convincing, so Owen arranged a secret test. I called Prince and I said to him, uh, hey, you got some free time at Amigo Studios in Los Angeles. And we went into the studio and he lays down a drum track with, I don't think there was a click track on there to keep time. He just like, psh, 
perfect time. And then he goes in and he does a bass guitar, just beautifully played and creating the rhythm section to a song. What he didn't know is he thought these are janitors walking around the studio or whatever, was that they were the top producers of the day. And they were seeing what he could do because I knew that I had to force Warner Brothers to let Prince be his own producer. So at the end of the session, Lenny Warnker of Warner Brothers comes up to me and he says, okay, you got it, you got it, you got it, I get it, I get who he is. So in 1977, Prince signs his first record deal. And it was a big one, a three-album deal worth well over a million dollars. It was practically unheard of at the time. And in today's economy, that's the equivalent of over $5 million. Warner Brothers was now on board with Prince producing himself. Plus, Prince would own the publishing rights to his music, which was rare for a new artist at that time. Both Owen and Prince were thrilled. Prince even showed up to the signing party with a special gift for the label. He even wrote a song for them that we played at the signing party, which was unheard of to have an artist walk in at your signing party and play a song written for your record label. The song has never been released, but you can find it pretty easily with the right keyword search. Unsurprisingly, the song is funky as hell, clearly influenced by the disco of the time. It opens with a chorus of Prince's layered vocals ooing in our ears before his falsetto breaks in and flirts with us. Later in the song, he sings, Making Music Naturally, Me and WB. His voice is not as strong as I've known it to be. It always felt like Prince arrived into my life, fully formed and adult, like Athena springing from Zeus's forehead. But instead of a goddess with a shield, Prince was a music god with a guitar. It's fascinating to hear him so fresh and green. This moment of his life reminds me that he is not a god. He's human and was once young. And for all of his musical confidence and self-awareness, he was still just a young kid, naive about the music industry. He fought for his publishing rights and for the ability to produce himself, but he didn't yet have the wisdom to ask for what eventually became the most important part of his musical legacy. It would eventually lead to the biggest battle of his career. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The record deal with Warner Brothers introduced Prince to the world, but his relationship with the label would eventually spoil. The terms of Prince's record deal meant that Warner Brothers owned his name and the masters to his music. Masters are the original recordings. They are the sourdough starter of the music industry, the mother. 
And as Prince learned more about the industry and became an international success, he wanted more ownership of his work. Imagine if you're an artist, a painter who paints beautiful whatever, and I come in and I say, you are fantastic. And you say, yeah, but I don't have any money. And if you can just lend me some money, I can get out of this job that I have washing dishes and just paint. And I say to you, okay, here's $15,000. And then you do some magnificent paintings and you sort of become famous and you've paid me back the 15000 that I loaned you, but I own your paintings. And that's the way the business model is of record labels. They loan you the money to make your album, and then you pay them back through your royalties. But at the end of the day, they still own your music. And they have control over your name, meaning any music that you put out under that name belongs to them. At that time, in the midst of Prince's career, when he was really screaming crazy in the 80s and 90s and just coming out with so much material all the time, I think it was two things. He was really angry that they were owning his stuff. That was his. I get that. And I think that they were trying to limit his creativity because they didn't want him to come out with so many albums. They felt he would dilute his audience because Prince can't stop. The songs just kept coming coming and coming into his brain and he had to get him out. That's why the vault is overflowing. But when you have such a high degree of creativity like Prince does, such an ultimate high degree of creativity, you just don't want anybody owning your stuff. But that wasn't the model. So he wanted out. He wanted out where he could have full control. You know, he was always a control freak, but he had the talent. He could deliver the goods. After Prince's original three-album contract, he remained with Warner Brothers for 15 more albums and founded his own record label, Paisley Park Records, that Warner Brothers distributed and helped fund. However, in 1993, tensions flared between Prince and his record company. He felt constricted by the confines of his contract. He wanted control of his output and of his own name. He began publicly protesting what he felt were unfair practices— Prince used to avoid talking to the press, but he accepted more interviews where he admitted his frustrations with the music industry. For his last contracted album, he delivered the poorest performing album of his career, Chaos and Disorder. He puts out Chaos and Disorder, which on its sleeve says this is a contractual obligation to Warner Brothers. This is tech entrepreneur and dedicated Prince fan Anil Dash. He has written about Prince's music and career for decades. I mean, it is the most F you, you know, kind of response you can possibly have to a giant multinational corporation. He's like, I wrote on the record, you know, I'm only here so I don't get fined. I mean, there's songs in there I love, love, love. He's playing it and you're like, this is something powerful. I think I may have listened to that album only five times since it came out because I could hear how angry and annoyed and just like frustrated he was. And it was such a different experience. No filter on it. Like you could just feel it from his heart. He was in an angry place. 
Yes, it was very discordant. Like the mm-hmm. music just really was not what I was used to. But I, one of those five times that I went back and listened to it, I was like, oh, this is actually a very solid album. <laughs> but just because, you know, we were so aware, I guess, or I was so aware of what was going on that I felt like, I don't know if I could be listening to this because it felt like one of the most personal albums that he had put out. Yeah. Know? At this point in Prince's career, we know he was a man of few words. But when he had something he wanted to say, he made sure people listened. Here he is on CNN in 1998, talking about the origins of the relationship between the music business and the performer. The genesis was the stage show. The genesis was the performing. Uh, Somebody came along one day and said, oh, let's make a record of this event. And when they did, they disenfranchised the artist. All right. To give someone seven cents on a dollar is unfair. Labels have a long history of exploiting musicians, especially Black musicians. In 1995, Prince will begin protesting the terms of his contract by making his thoughts plain on his face. I began to take Prince a whole lot more seriously when I saw that word slave on his face. I've taken him seriously as a musician, but as a thinker, as an activist, as a scholar, as a radical artist, I began to really think about what he was trying to tell us about what it means to own your masters, what he was trying to tell us about, you know, what it means that he died not knowing how much money was actually made from the Purple Rain soundtrack. That's Lene Denise, a DJ and scholar of Prince Studies. She's talking about the moment when, almost 20 years after signing his first record deal, Prince will begin performing with the word slave written on his face. Unlike me, Lene understood exactly where he was coming from. So I think what he was doing was teaching us to make a direct correlation between the plantation model and and the music industry model. Right. Like so to don the word slave on your cheek and also call this album emancipation is him teaching us about the afterlife of slavery and how it permeates all of these industries. Lene gives a talk at colleges and universities about the history of exploitation of black musicians, including how blues musicians were sometimes paid in liquor or recorded from prison cells. This lecture is named Thieves in the Temple after the Prince song from the 1990 movie Graffiti Bridge. She links that history of music industry exploitation back to Prince. And when we're talking about Black entertainment, we are indeed talking about labor. And if we're talking about labor, we're talking about capitalism. If we're talking about capitalism, we're talking about white supremacy, right? Like, so I think that the, the, the slave language on the face and the bold, rebellious and just radical move to do that, to interview, you know, and go on late night television with this word on your face in the face of a nation who rarely truly acknowledges it, certainly not the legacies of slavery um, that show up in these different industries, whether we're talking about, again, the prison industrial complex and or the American music industrial complex. 17 years after first signing with Warner Brothers, giving them ownership of his name and the master recordings of his music, Prince changes his name. And in true Prince fashion, he chooses a name that doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Instead of a word, he chooses an unpronounceable symbol known as love symbol number two. 
It was a combination of the universal male and female signs with the trademark Prince Curly Q thrown in. Here's Prince on the Larry King Live show back in December 1999. Compared to most people in, let's say, show business, you're an unusual person. Most people don't get famous with one name and then change it, right, would you say? What's the story of that, by the way? I had searched deep within my heart and spirit, and I wanted to uh, uh, make a change and move to a new plateau in my life. And one of the ways in which I did that was to change my name. It sort of divorced me from the past and all the hang-ups that go along with it. Prince was definitely making a business decision by leaving his record label, but by changing his name to Love Symbol Number 2, he showed he had artistic reasons as well. Can you tell us what it signifies? It's sort of come about over time. Uh, I've always morphed the female and the male symbol together. It's pretty cool, ain't it? Makes me for great jewelry, too. When Prince changed his name, his team sent floppy disks to the press with images of his new name so they could publish the symbol correctly. June 7th, 1993, Prince changes his name to an unpronounceable symbol. Prince was, you know, he was, one, very, very technologically fluent, and two, he took himself pretty seriously. So it mattered to him that people get the name right, get the symbol right. So at the moment when they know they want Rolling Stone and, you know, Newsweek and whatever to cover this new symbol name, they decide that the solution to this is that they are going to make uh, the medium of the time is floppy disks. I mean, I think, you know, young people probably haven't even seen them, but that's like, that's how you send stuff out. And those floppy disks initially just have a image of the symbol, at least so you can kind of copy and paste it into your magazine or your newspaper. And then later versions had a full font that you could actually type it on your keyboard and, and, and load it up. In the early aughts, Anil wrestled with the decision to buy a unique Prince item, one of those original love symbol number two floppy disks. Years later, in 2014, he finally decided he had to have it. That floppy disk was still for sale, I'm not kidding, for $9. And I got it, and I just took a picture. I took a picture and I put it up on Twitter and I'm on blog and whatever. And it went nuts. All the folks who worked on it at Paisley Parker, like I worked on that disk. Some folks who'd gotten it when they were working as writers in media were like, oh yeah, I remember seeing that. You know, like, so it was just like this like connecting point. And then, of course, you know, after he passed, it sort of made the rounds again. Like, everybody realized, like, the breadth and the depth of what he had done. And somebody sent me a link of, like, one of these same floppy disks on eBay for, like, $11,000. And I was like, you know, and I was like, I'm good. I got it. Like, you know, I got it on my shelf behind me. uh, As, you know, as I talk to people, I got it on the Zoom in the background because I can, like, tell people, like, hey, you can see it. It's right here. It's real. It's a floppy disk. It's cool. Once the technical logistics of love symbol number two were out in the world exactly the way Prince wanted, there was the obvious next question. How do you pronounce an unpronounceable symbol? How were we, mere earthlings, supposed to address the purple one? Here's what Prince had to say about that, again from Larry King Live. So how did the artist formerly known as come about? Well, that came up through people's uh, problem with mainly the the media's problem with not having a pronunciation for the symbol. So they had to come up with something, I guess. So the artist formerly known as is a media invention. Yes, sir. Not your invention. No, sir. You're a symbol. Uh You can barely hear it, but Prince makes a sound that matches the incredulous look on his face. 
If you've never seen this 1999 interview, you have to watch it. Not only because it's one of the best interviews Prince has ever done, but also because Prince looks amazing in it. He's dressed in all black with gold embroidery, and his hair shimmers under the studio lights. Okay, how do you promote a symbol? At this question, Prince holds up a diamond-encrusted charm of love symbol number two on a gold chain. He smiles as he shows it off to Larry King. The symbol is slightly smaller than the palm of his hand. What we found is throughout the world, if you hold this up and show it to people, what they think of, they will say Prince. So how did the name change actually lead to Prince getting ownership of his masters? For Prince, the name change was, well, symbolic. Love symbol number two literally and figuratively represented his freedom, even as he was still trapped in contracts he didn't agree with. Warner Brothers may have owned everything Prince did, but love symbol number two could release music that belonged only to him. Of course, Prince was ridiculed for that decision. You know, when he wrote Slave on His Face and he went to war with the record labels, they disrespected him so fundamentally. He was telling the truth about an industry, and they acted like he was crazy for it. He spent an entire two decades on the outs. Like, from the moment that he first changes his name in 1993 to the moment when he's inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2004 is a lifetime. It's 21 years during which the conventional wisdom and the prevailing wisdom was he's lost the plot, he doesn't know what he's talking about, uh, he fell off, he's not going to have a hit again, he's not relevant. Prince returned to using his name in 2000. Four years later, Prince became a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which moved him to a new level of his career. He opens the Grammys in 2004, performing with Beyonce for the 20th anniversary of Purple Rain, he gets inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and has, like, the greatest guitar solo anybody's ever seen. You know, three years later, he's the best Super Bowl performer that we will have or have ever had. And all of a sudden, he's an elder statesman again. But the prior two decades, he was in the wilderness. The industry did not mess with him. The media did not mess with him. The fans were there, but the conventional wisdom was that he had fallen off. And he never stopped creating, and he never wavered in what he asked for. Prince, once an icon for rebellious youth, was now a mentor and elder statesman. And his fight for his masters became a waiting game. But in 2014, 30 years after the release of Purple Rain and 19 years after he first wrote Slave on his cheek with black eyeliner, Prince gained control of his masters and re-signed with Warner Brothers. It seems odd for Prince to re-sign with Warner Brothers after battling them for so long. But once he had his masters, Prince didn't seem to have any other beef with them. People cannot fathom that kind of patience. The strength of character and courage and, and the knowledge you have to have of like, I am that bad on, these, on every instrument and on everything I can do, to have that confidence and say, I'll wait, I'll wait. 10 years, I'll wait. 20 years, I'll wait. And when I come around on the other side, you know, all, all these other artists that have come along since that are owning their work, having their voice, you know, doing things their own way. It took Prince 21 years to get back his masters. By now, he was kind of an elder statesman in the music business. Prince took it upon himself to teach other artists coming up about the importance of owning their music. 
Here's Prince at a press conference in 2005 promoting the release of his album 3121. I would challenge all artists before they get into these agreements to sit down and actually ask that every one of these things be explained to them, like free goods clauses and uh, digital rights and, and owners, uh, ownership of masters. As a result of Prince's crusade, artists like Beyonce, Taylor Swift, Ashanti, Chance the Rapper have learned how to navigate the record industry and retain ownership of their masters. Prince may not have been in the room with these artists as they sought to gain control of their careers, but he definitely carved out a path for them to follow. There's so many people that have that story of him putting them on, giving them space in Paisley Park, talking to them about owning their masters and their recordings, and um, talking to them about how to interact with the industry. And I think about um, just after Prince had passed, Chance got Album of the Year. Here you have this young man, I think he was 24 at the time, you know, a black man from Chicago who owned his music, right? Getting Album of the Year, owning his music, that was inconceivable a generation earlier. Like, you couldn't get there without being on a major label. You couldn't get there without all the apparatus around you that you didn't own your master recordings. And it changed in a generation, and it was a generation that Prince spent, well, honestly, being treated like he was crazy. It's been almost 30 years now since Prince first wrote Slave on his face to protest his contract with Warner Brothers. I still don't think calling himself a slave was an accurate label, but I understand his motivation better now. As a teen, I worried Prince was leaving me behind, that he had become greedy. As an adult, as a creative person who now signs contracts about who has the right to my work, I know that he wasn't leaving me behind. He was actually creating a new path for people like me. I'll do what I can to pay his musical legacy and its lessons forward, and I hope you will too. Next week on The Prince Mixtape, the nature of funk and what made Prince so electric on stage. The Prince Mixtape is produced by CNN Audio and Pineapple Street Studios. It's hosted by me, Nicole Perkins. Our producers are Emmanuel Hapsis, Beandria July, and Natalie Brennan. Our managing producer is Aaron Kelly. Our editor is Darby Maloney. Mix and original music by Hannes Brown. Our head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. And our assistant engineers are Sharon Bardalis and Jade Brooks. At CNN, our senior producer is Felicia Patinkin, and our executive producer is Abby Fintress Swanson. Nicole Pesaru and James Andres designed our artwork. Executive producers for Pineapple Street Studios are Gabrielle Lewis, Barry Finkel, Jenna Weiss Berman, and Max Linsky. Special thanks to Noah Camuso, Hannah Park, Katie Hinman, Tamika Balance Kalazni, Sonia Tun, Chip Grabo, Anissa Gray, Frank Lomonti, Steph Garrett, Graham Duda, Andrea White, Lindsay Abrams, Robert Mathers, Lisa Namoro, Kira Posey, and John Dianora. 